All right, Christopher here. Welcome to Do Explain. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my current supporters who inspire me to carry on with this project and make it financially viable as well. I'm very grateful to all of you. Big hugs. And while I'm not in the business of telling people what to do, I can't share my vision for Do Explain going forward. I like to work on the podcast full time instead of just a few days a month. I want to build a real platform for the fun and friendly exchange of interesting ideas. And I want to do it ad-free, if possible, because I don't want any ideas to be off-limits for us to explore, and I also want to keep saying dumb shit without repercussions. But to do this, I'll need a steady income, and that's why I need your help. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here, and you want to join me in my vision and become a part of growing this project, consider going over to patreon.com slash doexplain and sign up to become a monthly supporter. All right, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. So I'm here today with not one, but two of my marvelous previous guests here. So we have Sam Kuypers. Sam, how are you doing, son? Doing all right. How are you? I'm very excited. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And then I have the one and only Matt Gutman for the third episode in a row, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure there, too. So I've spoken to both of you about uh, the idea of reductionism, abstractions, explanations, and what level of explanation makes most sense, explanation versus prediction, and how all of this ties into the idea that we can make free choices in the world. And from what I've gleaned, you have quite differing perspectives there where, yeah, I think Matt is less sympathetic to the idea of free will, whereas I think Sam would, much like myself, lean more towards that being conceptually useful and perhaps even necessary to explain our behavior. And so it'd be fun to have you two uh, hash this out a bit, and I'm going to try to lead the conversation somewhat while also acknowledging that I'm a homo interruptus that needs to stay in the background a little more. So I'll do my best on that. But I thought we could start with, actually, I want to start with my own journey there a little bit. I used to think that like an everyday person, I would assume that, yeah, I haven't examined it much. Free will seems obvious. I choose what I do. And uh, yeah, that's that. And then I came across Sam Harris and his perspective there where he very strongly refutes free will in the way of, yeah, if you look closer at your experience, at your phenomenology, you can see that thoughts and feelings and sensations, they just kind of pop up out of nowhere, it seems. And there's also no central conductor. The representation that you think is you is actually just that. It's a it's a model of you, and that can disappear. And then, yeah, there's just a space and things pop up. So where is any room for free will? And now I've come kind of full circle where I think along the Deutschian lines that, yeah, but free will does make sense as our best explanation of human voluntary behavior. And as of now, I'd say it's even indispensable as an explanation. And um, the 
idea that you can create knowledge is very central to that view. So maybe you can begin, Matt, to just, yeah, sketch what, what is the problem with free will as a concept in what seems to be a fully deterministic uh, universe? Yeah, so for me, the problem happens at the word free, basically. We can talk about a will, and a will does make sense at the level of talking about an agent or a person uh, as an abstract entity that kind of emerges from more foundational processes. So you can have a, uh, a dog, and the dog is a, an entity. There's a way in which it's still just a part of the physics of the world that is all unified, um, but it makes sense to say that the dog, you know, is running or uh, wants dinner. And at the same level of explanation, I might want dinner as a person. And um, that will describe a certain kind of process happening in me. And if I choose to eat uh, a hamburger instead of a chicken sandwich, it makes sense to talk about that choice as an operation of my mind. So uh, there is something that happens in my brain that causes me to choose that thing. And from my perspective, that that sort of comes from nowhere. I can't see the parts of my brain all coalescing into the choice. I just become aware of it at some point. But there's no sense in which that's free. Well, I guess it's it might be free in the sense that I, I'm a legally free person and I'm not imprisoned in being fed a hamburger. But uh, hmm. I, I can't choose otherwise than to make the choice that I do at the moment that I make it. Because all of the all of the factors that lead into my making that choice instead of any other choice are themselves outside of my control. And they are always going to be that way for those reasons. And if I had made a, a different choice, uh, it would have been for different reasons that had obtained at that time, which would be different uh, facts about the way that the world is. And just a clarification before I go over to you, Sam. So when you used the, the dog in this example here, would you say uh, that is analogous then? You wouldn't differentiate between the dog and a person in this sense? Um, the dog and the person will be different in some senses. So yeah, no, in, in this sense, in the sense that both the mind of the dog, and uh, you know, we might disagree about that, we'll see, but both the mind of the dog and the mind of the person are constituted of different events that, that all come from eventually outside of the dog and the person. So neither one can be free. There will be, of course, important differences between dogs and people. And um, Yeah, but in that sense of being free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and it also sounds then like, yeah, the physical story is the most important one in the sense that, yeah, the mind and its actions are fully determined by what the physical world is doing. Would you say that's fair? Um, I want to hedge against uh, just the word important, sort of, because I know that we're going to we're going to get into different things about levels of explanation and, um, <laughs> you know, the primacy of one thing over the other. But so um, it, it's not that the physical story is always the most important. But when we're discussing whether or not an action can be free, um, the fact that the physical story appears to be determined and, and really it, we don't even need the physical story in this sense to, to sort of know this. Even if we didn't have physics and we couldn't talk about physics in that way, we'd be able to still predict or notice patterns and notice that there are regularities that sort of are deterministic in the sense that they're, uh, they happen according to these apparently regular rules and are predictable. 
you know, even if we were just looking at people who choose certain things, you know, like whether to stop at a stop sign or whether to have meat with dinner, uh, some people will very regularly, you know, choose never to eat meat. And if you see that kind of person eating meat, you're, you're going to be suspicious. You're going to suspect that something has changed or you're going to wonder why that regularity is different. Or if somebody runs a stop sign who you know normally to be uh, a law-abiding person, you're going to suspect that something must explain that because otherwise you would expect them to behave in a certain way that was based on all of the other ways that they tend to behave. And uh, the more we, you know, having the physical story allows us to just sort of systematize that to where we we can look everywhere at every level and say, okay, none of this ever deviates from these particular rules. They always appear to be perfectly determined. And so uh, we can't see any space for where an outside influence would cause a deviation that would that would let me use the word free with respect to something like a choice. Right. Yes. Okay. So I want to bring you in now, Sam. So maybe you could sketch, yeah, your outline of why you think that free will does make sense in a deterministic universe. And then we can begin the, uh, yeah, the more specific interaction there. Yes. So first of all, I, I fully agree that whatever we call free will uh, cannot be at odds with, uh, with physics. So there's no, there, there can't be an outside influence. There cannot be a soul or something like that that is outside of physics that's guiding our actions. And in that sense, I think I completely agree with Matt. But I think my beef is, is really with a, well, first of all, a reductionist view of the world in which people think that when we analyze physical systems in terms of fundamental particles and their equations of motions, that we have fully captured what that system is doing and that, that if you're able to predict anything at the this what we tend to call the fundamental level which is, is a bit of a misnomer i think it's, it's the, the smallest skills are not necessarily the most fund fundamental explanations mm. but there's this sense in which if you're able to predict what all these fundamental particles are doing then you know what's going to happen at larger scales and uh, that is where i think i i disagree with people maybe with other physicists uh, I, I think that as matt kind of alluded to this there's higher level explanations that can have a a top-down causation to lower skills so sometimes the best explanation of what fundamental particles are doing is people are manipulating them or they're being used in a computation or they're being measured or something like that and uh, i think there is a a place for free will in physics or in, in our story of the universe where uh, it, it is an explanation of how higher level entities behave. So higher level entities like people, like agents. Yeah, I, th I feel like I agree with a fair amount of what Matt is saying, but there is still some disagreement here about how important these higher level explanations are, I think. If you say... I'm making a choice about having to eat a sandwich or not, then I really do think that the best explanation of what is going on in that circumstance is that you are making a choice. That it isn't, oh, the fundamental uh, equations are telling you what to do. It is you're creating something new and an explanation of what to do next. Um, and I think that's kind of where we start to deviate in our, our view on this matter. 
Yeah, right. So I, I just want us to avoid what I think is quite common when it comes to this idea of free will, which is just a, a semantic debate. And uh, it's very easy to kind of um, straw man the other view uh, by using free to mean something else. And in this case, like Matt alluded to there and what you said in the beginning there, Sam, that, yeah, when we're, we're talking about free will here, none of us are... Uh, invoking some sort of supernatural soul. We're all agreeing on the point that the universe is deterministic and there's nothing that can violate uh, that physical framework. So I think that's just good to stress before we continue there. But yeah, Matt, do you want to uh, uh, respond to something specific he said there? Or Yeah, one of the more, <clears throat> uh, maybe one of the more substantive points of disagreement there is the idea that top-down causation uh, as right. a result of these kinds of processes. To me, there's sort of the unity of everything means that causation being top down or bottom up neither makes sense. I mean, you, you can make sense of them for a particular purpose, maybe, but there is a sense in which things are never ultimately caused top down or bottom up. When a, a solar system forms, I mean, this is a bad example. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe more of a question than for Sam. So when, if we say that like my existence as an agent or my agenthood is top down causing me to choose a chicken sandwich, is that what you would say is happening? Yes. Okay. How does that work with the fact that each of, each of the parts of me that contribute to that, even as an agent, those are each the result in their own sense of outside forces and they they could be different at that level so if everything else about me is the same you know in two two circumstances where i'm standing and staring at the at the wendy's menu board mm -hmm. in one of those cases you know i haven't eaten um i haven't eaten any chicken sandwiches in a while but in the other one i've been eating chicken sandwiches a lot and, and there's just there's one part of my psychology there that is is a little bit different and the fact that that part of my psychology is different is what makes the crucial difference between my ordering a hamburger or not. Now, then you're presuming, it sounds like, that uh, the reason you've eaten those sandwiches to begin with is also outside of your control in mm -hmm. one of the examples there. So, I mean, yeah. I, I guess you could just, uh, yeah, you're smuggling in that assumption already that those things are also outside of your control. I mean, I'm certainly assuming that, like, for any given part of me, like the the reason that that part of me is the way that it is, is for reasons ultimately outside of my control, right? Like I, I didn't create myself. I didn't create this sector of the universe. Um, I find myself here in each moment. Mm. Well, you did, you did create certain parts of yourself. Like you have, for example, specific ideas about free will and mm -hmm. some of those are your own. They are inventions that you made that maybe no one else has ever thought of. I mean, sometimes people really do think of ideas that no one else has ever thought of. And I think in that sense, you can say, yes, you are partly a product of culture and say, you know, your perhaps parenting or, or of your immediate environment, but because you have copied certain ideas and, and behaviors from people in your environment say 
but you you also on top of that or or rather prior to that you 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 invent new things you invent new explanations and those really are yours they're your creation mm -hmm. but i guess matt you would say that yeah but but those being created by me can still be compatible with the idea that yeah i didn't choose what to create in any ultimate sense well not just that but um even the idea of i'm gonna go to wendy's for lunch i i create that idea right newly when it occurs to me in my mind today in fact i just created it i'm going to go to wendy's for lunch but that that's sort of a new piece of knowledge that i created but yes that that doesn't really get anywhere in terms of i, I didn't invent i would have had to create uh everything sort of in order for that to be genuinely new is it Feynman who said if in order to make an apple pie from scratch you have to first create the universe <laughs> I think it's Sagan, yeah. Sagan, okay, that's right, yeah. I feel like that's kind of how I feel about every piece of knowledge. So when we say that even a creative entity creates new knowledge, well, that entity uh, as an information processing you know, system, that may have been the first time that that information was processed in that particular part of the universe. But the fact that any particular pattern could be instantiated comes along with the existence of the universe in the first place. And then patterns either instantiate it or not at that point, and for all the reasons that they do. I just want to ask, because um, when you're saying that, it sounds kind of like, because what we want to do here and why we have free will, free will is a supposed solution to a problem. Like we're trying to explain something in the world when we use these concepts. And so it seems to me that your opposition here is kind of, uh, the end result of that is the explanation that everything just happens. Things just, yeah, atoms just move uh, along the loss of motions, what they dictate, and then things just happen. But that doesn't really help us discern anything, discern between different behaviors. And so I, I don't know what that gives us and why that would in any sense be better or more true than using free will and the top-down causality explanation. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. It's the, I, I really think there is a sense in which new things can come into being, um, and they're not just reshufflings of old things, although we do need, for example, prior culture to give us problems. But mm -hmm. yeah, the, there is a sense in which there, you know, when Einstein solved the problem in electromagnetism, and invented special relativity he he really did invent a new theory uh, th that theory wasn't there it shared certain features with previous theories it wasn't there yet because otherwise uh, the problem would have already been solved now but some alien culture somewhere else probably i mean in you know given a big enough multiverse that they will but when some alien discovers the same theory you know someone could in principle discover structurally the same theory and it would be the same and it will always be the same when it is discovered with respect to that problem and that description of reality. And, you know, the first time it's discovered in the universe, it might be new, but it was always, it was always there to be discovered, right? In the same sense that prime numbers are always there to be discovered. Yes, but there is a slight complication, which is that the well, first of all, there is a particular problem situation, and that problem situation will probably not have occurred before. 
So because the problem situation is always parochial, the problems that people face are very often very different. And I, I think that something like special relativity would have been, so th let's say that, you know, we humanity gets wiped out and a new species arises that's also able to think about the world and is able to present explanations, then if they do very well, I think they can also rediscover special relativity, but it will be, I think there will be subtle differences. Maybe, you know, they, they'll, maybe they'll have misconceptions that we don't or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe being pedantic, but I, I do think that there is a, that there, there will be differences in how our culture and that future, the possible future culture or a possible alien culture thinks about special relativity or about quantum theory. I mean, I, I think people think people are confused about quantum theory, maybe in some other universe. They're not confused. They're all very sound on this topic. So there are subtle differences. And the subtle differences where, you know, sometimes they're major errors. Sometimes it's just people use different notation for the same stuff. But the notation is also important. Anyway. This is just a way of saying there are many things that particular scientists do contribute, even though uh, you, there's a sense in which they, they discover a, a theory that is objective. It is it is there to be discovered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I don't think I would disagree that like there's always there's always going to be at least some differences because of just this, the scope of the size of things we're talking about. But yeah, it's it's hard to stay specifically on the topic of freedom of the will then it seems like you have a very there's a very high standard for how you can use the word free there in the sense that i i feel like it's the whole idea of well i didn't choose what to choose and i can't choose what to choose what to choose and so mm -hmm. on there's yeah. this infinite regress but i still feel like the epistemol the epistemology is important here because yeah, I would like you to uh, respond to that idea that you, free will is there to solve a problem. And if you were to say that, no, 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 free will doesn't exist, what is the alternate explanation that is a better predecessor to that? Because everything just happens or it's all determined is surely a worse explanation. So I'm curious how you view that argument. I actually am. I am curious about what. So what what problem does free will solve? What can I not explain about what's happening without free will? Why you chose to come on this podcast rather than another podcast that I'm sure you're invited to, for instance. And just like the way in which I'm using free will is really to mean that people can create new explanations. They can, they can create new things. And I don't think you can explain that without talking about people and their choices um, last time I was on this podcast, I talked about an example of, say, a child uh, learning the concept of negative numbers, and they've never encountered that subject before. And you, an adult responsible for them, you're going to sit down and talk about it with them. We may not be able to predict exactly what they'll learn about it. And every child who learns about negative numbers will have their own uh, permutations of all of their own different uh, little connotations about it. But you can predict pretty thoroughly that they are going to go from no knowledge and no theory about numbers in this area, or maybe even no concept that numbers can work this way. And then at the end, they're going to have a concept very much like yours. And again, you know, the, each person who learns the concept of general relativity learns it in their own way and has their own sense of it. But you can, you can predict the way in which a particular agent is going to learn about a particular thing 
And if you knew, the more that you knew about their existing knowledge, and the more that you could control the way in which you know they were going to encounter incoming knowledge, the more fidelity you would be able to get in terms of predicting what they're going to learn and when. I, I think that's a misconception. I think we we really can't predict what will happen. We have guesses, and sometimes they're more right than other times. But it, let, let's say you know you're faced with Gauss as a teenager, and now he Gauss, if I remember correctly, was very prolific. He, he as a teenager, he was already thinking about uh, converging series and and all kinds of complicated mathematical concepts that we typically assume teenagers can't deal with because many uh, professional mathematicians might find them difficult. But mm. in that case, he, it would have been very difficult to predict what Gauss was thinking about and what he was learning because he was doing stuff that was pretty cutting edge even as a teenager. Again, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong, but then in principle, such people do exist. And to kind of connect it more to your specific point, like you, you don't really know what, a, what a, a child will learn when you teach him uh, negative numbers because he might invent a problem that you weren't aware of with, with those numbers. He might do something with them. He might think of an idea that you hadn't considered yet. And then that immediately like ruins your prediction that he will learn these ideas that you thought he was going to learn. Yeah. And, and I mean, that has to do with our limitations, right, in terms of our ability to make these kinds of predictions. But we can make, it's not that those kinds of predictions are in principle impossible. It's that we never have enough information at our own scales. If you if you installed a Truman Show type, you know, series of <laughs> devices watching Gauss as a teenager, and then I, you know, stuck a bunch of mathematicians in a room who could who could take a look at exactly what he was writing and what he was looking at. They're going to be able more and more to to guess at what he's going to guess, and and the more they know what else he's been exposed to, they'll be able to you know guess about those. And so it'll always be guesses. But from the perspective of someone that Gauss knows at the time, they have no ability to know. He has, you know, only his own guesses. But people with more and more knowledge about him and about his problem scenario will be more and more able to guess. And the fact that they can is because because he behaves according to these regularities and because he's working with problems that themselves demonstrate these regularities. In our last in our first conversation, actually, I think you uh, brought up a very interesting point, I thought, that. The whole idea in epistemology, which is very central here, to the uh, unpredictability of the future growth of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, in principle, you uh, weren't fine with that. And you said that that is just for any particular system internally. Like you as an agent can never predict your own future growth of knowledge. Yeah. But if I recall correctly, you seem to think that in principle, that is not impossible. That's the door I'm knocking on right now with this example, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was curious because I thought that was an interesting point that in principle, someone with uh, way more knowledge than we have and way more being way more powerful, I think you expressed it both in, in computational power and, and, and knowledge could in principle predict uh, that Newton is going to come up with his theory. And I, I was just curious, uh, Sam, if you would agree with that or what you would respond to that. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think we would be able to predict what Newton is going to discover. Well, for, first of all, the, the situations that you're now kind of that you're now considering uh, induce problems that Newton would never have had. Like, 
you are considering a situation in which there, there's a Truman-like, there's a Truman Show-like conspiracy that, <laughs> that is used to kind of peer into the lives of, of these people that you want to predict what they will do. And first of all, that's that's not really the problem that Newton had. Newton was was free, and there was no conspiracy like that. And and people who who live in those circumstances might well become aware of their predicament. And instead of trying to work on the mathematics that you're trying to predict, they will learn. They might try to outsmart you. Hmm. Yeah. Is it? What if we had something like uh, a a computer simulation of Newton? Is it possible to simulate a person at the at the relevant level to make them a person? Uh, yeah, but then you're just putting them in the computer. This is, well, you, if you simulate a person, then that is actually that person, and he's in the computer. And you see him discover whatever he's discovering real time. This feels almost like my point, though. Like, Newton's, Newton's process of discovery, for the time, at the time for him, it was free, and it was unconstrained, and he... but. If we simulated him, that would be essentially him from his perspective. The simulation would would just be exactly what he's doing in all of the same ways, and it would be predictable for those reasons. He couldn't predict it, and no one standing next to him could predict it, but an, an arbitrarily powerful being just looking at those events that constitute him at the time could predict exactly what they were doing. Well, is it really predicting if you're just seeing him do it in real time? Uh, that I don't think that is prediction. I, th- I think that's just you have captured Newton in a computer. And also, uh, that is, again, not entirely the same thing as real Newton, because real Newton will not have had certain limitations that computer version Newton will have. J- just as in the Truman Show example, if you simulate someone in a, in a, in a computer, you're faced with all kinds of moral issues that, that aren't there for the real Newton. Like, you cannot just suddenly stop the simulation after you've started it, because that, that would be immoral. And uh, you really have trapped a mind in a computer. So they, And they might become aware that their world is limited in the way that they, they're not used to. Like, they might notice that there's a glitch in the simulation or something. Yeah, they have subtly different problems. That would make them sort of not the same person. Yeah, well, that, that is a shortcoming in the, sim, in the simulation. I think my main point is, yes, you can simulate a person in a computer, but you do create new problems that don't exist in the real situation. Like, you can't just suddenly stop the simulation. And, and, and so, but I, I still think that, Matt, you're saying that, yeah, even if we're simulating... Uh, Newton and he becomes a new person with a new problem situation, his knowledge growth would presumably be different, but we could still, in principle, being that alien that you invoked there, predict this, right? That's your claim. Like we can predict what the simulation will do. We can predict what a, a, a knowledge creating entity will do, just like we could predict other things. Uh, it's not fundamentally different in that sense. Right. There's going to be some, if we just scale up, the power of the simulation and the the accuracy of the simulation and and so on, you'll reach a point where for some agent somewhere, you'll be able to predict. And then every agent is sort of captured. I mean, it, once you have the principle, everything is is captured in the same concept. It's just a matter of scaling it. 
And that that kind of ties into what I flagged uh, early there when you said that uh, in this same regard, you wouldn't differentiate between a dog and a human behavior in the sense mm-hmm. of being fundamentally predictable, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I almost do want to talk about um, the issue that was brought up a little bit earlier of counterfactuals. Like what for Sam, Sam, what is a what is a counterfactual in this way when Newton, you know, if, if there's some other Newton similar in ours in our world who doesn't discover, doesn't that imply that something else was different about reality? That then that that difference had to have started somewhere outside of Newton and propagated its way into him, basically. Uh, yeah, or, or it, it could have been inside Newton, uh, like he could have had misconceptions that he created and then he got stuck with. Well, but when you describe him creating those misconceptions, doesn't isn't that itself just a description of a certain part of his brain doing a certain thing? It is that's very difficult to tell because we don't really know how minds work yet. Like we have, we know some stuff, but if we really knew in all detail how a mind would work, then we'd we'd be able to build an AGI, and we can't. So that is something I'm agnostic about. Um, but my, I think the AGI program we'll have to create new things and i guess i guess that's just reiterating my previous point but it's it's difficult to say what would have been different like, i think it could be just a difference in the computer program and then you would say well the, there was a physical difference in that case and I said, yes I, I would agree that there is a physical difference but nonetheless it makes sense to talk about counterfactuals it's like there's physical content to counterfactuals i can say if the universe would have been different then uh, different things would have happened if we killed Newton, then he wouldn't have invented his theory. So, given let's take that example though. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm right on the cusp for whatever reason between a chicken sandwich and a hamburger, and I'm standing there. There are actually at least two universes: one in which I order the chicken sandwich, and one in which I order the hamburger. Is that right? Um, I think there's always infinitely many universes, but there's a measure on them. But that's again not really important for example you can you can just think about uh in half of the universe is you you buy a chicken sandwich and the other half you 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 buy a hamburger yeah so when i find myself buying either one it's hard for me to know so so from my perspective I, i wasn't free to do one of them when i find myself doing something either i find myself standing there and i'm i'm holding some kind of sandwich I know that I'm in that universe and I know that I'm in also in the other universe. And I know that for any given choice, I can't explain why I've made that choice and not some other choice other than to point at the features that are different. And so whenever I'm, anytime we talk about something that is a choice, what I'm really talking about is the factors were different here. And here are those factors. And if you want to say, well, what explains why did, why did you go to Wendy's instead of McDonald's? Well, now, you know, somebody with that question, I'm going to have to point them at just yet other further prior causes that explain why each version of me made those different choices instead of the ones that the other version made. And all of those are going to result. They're, they're just going to eventually be physical differences that led to those different outcomes. I don't think that's necessary because you can explain to someone why you went to Wendy's and they can also criticize your choice to go to Wendy's and, and you can learn to do something else. Well, when you say you, I can explain to someone, though, isn't that isn't that going to be about a story that eventually just is, you know, composed of different upstream situations? Well, people have 
problems and, and you can explain the problems that you're dealing with at a particular time so you can say well i am hungry right now mm. and i mean you're always in the frame i think you said this in the last podcast as well but you, you're always in the framework in which you're assuming certain things to be true like we can't keep going back further and further and further in time to where i can't keep explaining why i'm hungry for example that, that has to come to a stop at some point but i think it's a completely satisfactory explanation to say I am hungry. I didn't bring lunch to uh, to work or something, and now I'm looking for a restaurant. Do you know a good restaurant to go to? And that that will just be the explanation for why you went to Wendy's. And if someone says, "Well, you know, you could have also gone to this other restaurant, which actually serves uh, milkshakes, which I know you're very fond of," then you would say, "Oh, well, that that is actually a lot better. I would like to have a milkshake during lunch. I will now do that thing." And I think that's that's a perfectly satisfactory account of, of why you do something. So this, I mean, every I think I've mentioned before that every philosophy problem kind of bleeds into every other philosophy problem. But <laughs> now it feels like I want to I want to point out that what what someone finds satisfactory as an explanation has to do with their problem. So when we're when we're looking at agents um, and, and asking about what they're doing, we are also agents. Anybody wondering. Anybody looking for an explanation about what an agent is doing is an agent that has their own problem situation. And so what kind of account I find satisfactory about what a person does will depend on me and what I want to know about them. Uh, yeah, but then that's true of everything. Like, like all, all explanations are, are always, like all explanatory knowledge is made by people. And in that sense, knowledge about fundamental particles and what they're up to is, is also uh, knowledge made by a person who is interested in finding out about fundamental particles. And yes, yeah, but we don't we don't say, therefore, that those explanations are more arbitrary than other explanations. Well, any explanation that's good enough for the person with the problem that solves their problem is is satisfying for them. Um, but I, so to come back now, so somebody asking about me, right? If you, if you're asking, well, okay, I know this other restaurant that had, you know, that you like these milkshakes from, why didn't you go there? If that is a question that you have about me at that time, then we're, you're, what you're really asking is what, what about the situation made you go to the one restaurant and not the other? Now, whether I give that description in terms of, uh, my mental states or in terms of fundamental particles, um, whether or not that is satisfying or a good explanation depends on you, the person asking your problem. So if you say, why didn't you go to, you know, why didn't you go to Shake Shack? Why did you go to Wendy's? Well, now one way of answering that would be, oh, it didn't occur to me. I didn't even think about Shake Shack. That That's probably a perfectly good explanation. If you were an incredibly sophisticated neuroscientist, though, I might bring up a big diagram that shows the part of my brain that holds information about Shake Shack or the knowledge that Shake Shack exists. And then I might show you, you know, the part that, that brings up Wendy's. And I might show you that my brain, for whatever reason, when I was hungry and deciding, it retrieved the information about Wendy's and it did not retrieve any information about Shake Shack. And when I show you that, you might look at it and say, okay, I know what this diagram means. I know what the knowledge of Shake Shack is represented there. And I can see that it was never accessed. And so I can see that you never had access to it. And so I can see that given that operation of your brain, you never had a chance of choosing it because choosing it would mean that your brain at some point accessed and at some point, uh, you know, went down that path. 
I, I, I don't think you, you just said anything more than you didn't think of, of the other, well, how do you call it? Yeah, exactly. Shake Shack. Shake Shack. I, you just said, you, you like, we already knew that you didn't think of Shake Shack. And, and right. The, no, the, that's what I mean. The, the physical story is just as good or it can be just as good if you know enough about what it represents. And so it's, it's not, it's never that one is preferable. And, and if we knew, so every, every abstraction can be dissolved at some level into, I mean, th- this is going to start sounding suspiciously like um, reductivism to you, right? Um, but every, <laughs> every higher level explanation yeah. can be in principle dissolved into lower level explanations. And if you're the kind of being that is satisfied with those, then, then they'll be just as satisfying. But you might lose some information there. Yeah. You can always say, oh, your computer is a thing that consists of hardware doing stuff. But then if you, if you only think about what the particular physical substrates are doing in the computer, then you're missing a lot about what the computer actually is, which is a universal machine instantiated in a particular physical system. Mm-hmm. So... You, if you are only concerned with the atoms in the computer and kind of thinking, oh, well, yeah, I can see that some of them are moving to the left and some of them are moving to the right, and they seem to be very coherent and they're kind of doing something unusual, but uh, they're, they're not doing anything outside of the, the realm of physics, then that is not the same explanation as saying uh, we have a universe in which we can build computers that are universal and can compute uh, any computable function. And that is what this physical is up to right now. Yeah. So, I mean, right. So it's, it would be really inconvenient or it would be, I mean, probably impossible. So, but I think that when you, there's a hidden, when you say that if you talk about, and you're saying, if you talk about only the atoms in the computer, but you, you refers to someone and the someone is the someone with the question. So when we're to try and bring this all the way back around, when someone has a question about why I choose one sandwich or another, why do I go to one restaurant or another, they are probably a person and you probably say they have to be a person. They have to be a person with a problem such that they're looking for an explanation in terms they understand. The fact that there's always a person asking the question means that whether or not a particular mode of explanation is good depends on that person. So the, the abstraction level story, the free will level story, or I'm just going to call it the will level story, is not <laughs> intrinsically better. It, it's It's probably better because the person you're talking to probably has access to that abstraction and all of us have access to abstractions about people that make those good explanations. Um, but those, those are in themselves assumptions about the person and their problem and the, the unity, the fact that all of these explanations have to be any true explanation can be synthesized with any other true explanation means that yes, questions about what did I, what, what occurred to me or not, is always synonymous at some level with a question about what happened what happened in my brain and then what happened outside of my brain to cause that to happen in my brain. All right, folks, time for the fun stuff. If you enjoy my podcast and you want to support it, you can now become a monthly Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash doexplain. Or if you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can visit ko-fi.com slash doexplain instead. That is ko-fi.com slash doexplain. Perhaps ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And surely, Jesus would donate to uh, doexplain. 
Another way to make the podcast grow and improve is to tell people you know who you think would enjoy it to check it out. Because with more support and exposure, I'll be able to improve the podcast continually and produce more content, which is something that I would love to do. Lastly, thank you so much to all of you who've donated so far. It truly means the world to me, and I want to extend my gratitude. Back to enjoying the show. But so you wouldn't agree that some information uh, is objectively lost by going to a lower explanation, uh, lower level of explanation sometimes. That there is, because that's what I feel like is omitted here, where, yeah, the abstract information cannot be, uh, no matter what kind of agent is asking the question, fundamentally, there's no other way of uh, I think I see what you mean there. When so you're, I think that you're, you're picturing the description. So when you say, um, just give me the physical story, right? Okay. Now I, now I describe all these atoms to you. Great. That doesn't, that leaves out a bunch of information about the higher level abstraction. I think that you're sort of now you're picturing that I have lost all of the context about the question and any other knowledge I might have. And now I'm just getting a book or just a, a series of equations and they're supposed to be satisfactory. And if if that were true, and if we we sort of missed all of the agenthood and the, and the fact that a person has to be asking this and that they're thinking about it and that they know things, then yes, that's not good. You can't hand you know telling someone just giving them a series of equations is not the same as the as them understanding about people and about motivations and about all of the other abstractions that constitute uh, agency, but. Right given that they that they do know those things and that they also have access to information or knowledge about how physics works they can do the work of synthesizing those things now if you if you yeah if somebody has a question why did that person go to a store and then you destroy everything about the questioner's brain except knowledge about physics yes they will they will no longer know what you're talking about and a lot will have been lost uh, because now they won't know the same thing that they were asking before but given that someone already knows about agents and is asking about them and, and, and knows about all these things and wants an explanation, now, now we can start giving the neuroscience and, and we're not going to lose any information there unless they just don't know what those relationships are. And when you do know the relationships, you can just give the neuroscience when, when, when we have enough information between those two. The, the, the neuroscience doesn't really add anything, it seems like. It's, it's just saying the things we already knew, like... Yes. You did not think of yes. uh, the, the particular restaurant, the Shake Shack. Yeah, I agree. So once you once you know the abstraction, you're not you're not getting anything new. It doesn't help you. But the fact that it is sufficient or the fact that it is equivalent shows you that nothing nothing about the situation, about the agent, matters at the level of predicting. It it can be useful in terms of your predicting, but nothing 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 new came out of the abstraction. Everything is still there and is still in principle the same as the physics story. You, it allowed you to compress your discussion. Now you can just say, I didn't think of it. And you don't have to, you know, describe a billion, billion particles. But you, that didn't help you get anywhere new either. You didn't, you didn't create that agent didn't, when I create the new explanation about physics, right? When I invent calculus, I have to already know what calculus is in order to accept the the description of he invented calculus, but nothing happened other than all of those fundamental movements. If I already know both of those and have access to them. 
Yeah, so that's another place I disagree because there, there really is something new going on. Like when you run a computer simulation and uh, you know, you're seeing all these particles move around, and it, it happens to be a computer simulation of people, then you might start to notice, well, they're doing something very strange. And, and there's, there's this explicanda hidden in the simulation um, that you then notice, and then you have to explain why that particular pattern is there. And you're not doing that when you're just giving the, the fundamental equations in motion and the, the, the atomic picture of that situation. There is something else to explain in such a simulation. You haven't like by predicting what what is happening there, and again we, we can there's a separate discussion about whether you can actually predict such such systems. But if you, even if you think you can you can predict them, then you're not explaining what they're doing. You're you're not pre uh, explaining what they're doing by predicting what will happen to the positions of atoms that constitute people. Yeah, and it seems like. Because I, this was a new thing, Matt, that I didn't understand from your perspective there. But so, so kind of like saying if we had mapped the neural correlates of consciousness in a way that I could always know that this particular pattern means that you're seeing red, for instance. So you're saying if we have both of those sides, then uh, either side is just as good as an explanation. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And this makes me so furious because I thought I had a great point there, and now I completely lost it. So just Sam, do you have his point? Do you know where he's going? Give me uh, ten seconds there. If you could just see it fine grained enough in my brain here, Matt, you mm -hmm. would know what I was going to say. Would know. There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you're proving his point. Oh, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, rescue him. Yeah, I think there's a discrepancy because there's all kinds of new ideas that we're using when we're not describing things in terms of particles and and, and as i think christopher noticed in the in the last podcast with matt uh, causation itself is, is a higher level explanation it's not contained within the framework of initial conditions and equations of motion it's outside of it it's, it's already an an extra idea that is needed to explain not only even just people but just certain physical situations well i, I think i have a good tagline um, everything, so this, this may not be helpful and I apologize then for interrupting you, but everything not can, everything that we seem to be losing when we move between these levels of explanation is actually hiding in the questioner, the hypothetical questioner that we're imagining the person whose problem it is when we talk about the explanation. So when, uh, to go back to David's canonical example here, um, why is this copper atom sitting there? And we, we who are thinking about this, we know that it's, in Winston Churchill's statue, and we are interested in all the reasons that Winston Churchill's statues are there, um, everything missing about the physical story, anything that might be lost, is is in the person asking. It's in the nature of the question. The fact that you want an explanation about that copper atom, if you're if you're just a uh, an atom accountant from some solar system far away from here and you just want to keep track of all the atoms in every solar system to know you know which, which ones are still there and how many are in each solar system and that's all i'm keeping track of you might know that the copper atom is there and you might be able to tell the whole story about how it got there and you don't care about war or about winston churchill or about leadership um you only care about the atom and if somebody else came and said like well that why are why are those copper atoms that doesn't look like a naturally occurring copper vein now you might be able to start giving a whole story about like, yeah, the, these organisms, they put it there. Okay, well, why did they do that? 
well, they're, they're constituted in this way. Okay, why are they constituted in that way? Well, because they have a bunch of carbon and methane and it organizes itself like this. You, so all of the other concepts that have to do with how physics works, they'll be implicated when you have problems and when you're looking for explanations and how you're looking for explanations. But somebody else looking at the same circumstances can, in principle, always get to the same point by just talking about the atoms. It's just that you're not going to encounter people who do that because people are always going to have higher level explanations and abstractions that they're trying to work with. And so yeah. you'll, you'll always be making progress in that direction. But the, the, the antithesis project progress is always available. You can always dissolve the abstractions into something simpler. And, and the simplest thing, yes, at the end gives no explanation, right? At the end of the day, you say, well, that's the way the universe is. The universe just is that way. And that, that gives you no content and it doesn't get you anywhere, but it is just the most true statement for that reason, almost. Yeah, but you're also missing out on not just people. Like, forget, you know, we, we can kind of forget about people, but something like thermodynamics doesn't make any sense in a world in which you're only concerned with the kinds of problems you're just explaining. Like, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, thermodynamics is, is not just about any particular physical system. It's uh, it's not even about any particular physical theory. It's about, it's a principle of physics, or it, it's a set of principles of physics that should apply to all theories of physics. So thermodynamics remains, as a set of principles, remained unchanged when we discovered uh, general relativity. Like thermodynamics also applies to general relativity. And that is a fundamental fact about nature that's not, not evident from just equations of motion. Like it, it's thermodynamics in a sense is a set of laws about what kinds of equations of motion are and are not allowed. Because for example, you can't have equations of motion that violate uh, conservation of energy. And that is, we haven't talked about people here because uh, they don't really matter to this story. But And yet there is this fact about nature that by just talking about what has happened in a particular situation, we've completely missed out on this very deep principle of physics. But to, I mean, to me, that sounds like a way of saying that if, so it sounds like you're saying you you could not have in principle a person who never discovered this almost like the reason that humans know about thermodynamics is because when you, when you start learning about these systems in the first place, when you start gaining knowledge, knowledge will interact in such a way that you have, you will pick up on this higher level abstraction or like it is available for you to be picked up on. So it, it is a part of the regularity in the way that the world works. Yes, but then it, well, my claim is it's a regularity that you're missing out on if you're just being an atom accountant. Yeah, yeah, no, I, and I don't. So when I and when I'm talking about when I talk about atom accounting or fundamental physics or whatever that is, I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm alluding just back to not not any particular way of doing physics or any particular system of accounting for physical law. I'm I'm just alluding to like the determinism of events. Like events are deterministic. Their deterministicness 
has implications for what we can what new properties we can attribute to emergent properties of those events and so like an agent and again we might just this whole conversation might be superfluous after we actually just agree that like well freedom can't be deterministic and now we're just you know yelling about whether or not it makes (laughs) sense to use the word free but the the determinism the determinism is like the the main story there and there's there's no way of getting around it and then then all these other descriptions of what agents are doing or different uh you know what different people might do or might discover whether or not that's pre- i guess you're saying it's not predictable i mean it i guess the idea of it being both deterministic but not in principle predictable might might be like a, a dissonance for me yeah well uh, you can imagine what is a good example you can, so uh, turing machines are deterministic and yet it we can't in principle know whether they will halt well we can for any particular turing machine but we can't make a general purpose halting program that when we input a uh, the software of a turing machine mm-hmm. uh, it will tell us whether or not that particular turing machine will halt or not and that's see, but to me that's part of the i mean this this feels like a great example of what i mean about the individual agent right no no turing machine can predict whether or not it itself will halt but for any given turing machine i can build just a much bigger machine that will determine whether that machine will halt thing i know is there's no halting program you can't make a general purpose halting program that you can input any other Turing machine into such that it will give you the it will tell you whether or not that Turing machine halts or not. I know that there are Turing machines for which you can tell whether or not that specific Turing machine will halt, and uh, and of course you can just wait for forever. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> like sometimes you can wait and see whether it actually did halt. Like if it if it halts, then. You can observe this and you will know whether or not it is halted. Uh, the problem is, of course, with the ones that don't halt, in which case you don't know whether they ever halt and, by and waiting. Th- this anyway. is still an epistemological problem, right? Like the, it, there isn't, it is, there's always a matter of fact about whether it will halt or not. Yes, and that, that's what makes it interesting. Like there mm-hmm. is a real matter of fact, and yet some of these matters of fact we can't know. Uh, and sometimes we can't know them unless we run them. So it it does make sense to say, like, I have free will in the sense that maybe nobody around me can predict what I'll do. And I cannot predict what I'll do in that sense, right? Uh, my, and this is the kind of the Sam Harris sense of free will not being there. Mm-hmm. I, I can never predict what I'm going to be, what I'm going to think next, even. And nobody else can, you know, around me can predict it because we're all limited. Um, but the fact that my the fact that i am such a tiny being in the grand scheme of things and that my operation like my existence is so limited again in the grand scheme of things kind of shows like it's obvious to me that all of these things come from outside of me and they cause what i'm doing now i'll i'll have new ideas probably all of us have new, had new ideas during the course of this conversation that we have created in the sense of our being agents but um, they themselves are are kind of limited to the to the scope of what our individual brains could compute, right? Like none of us can, none of us could have thought of things that are beyond the capabilities of our own brains to to come up with. Yeah, I, th- I think for me the discussion is really about 
like is there really such a thing as a, a new idea and if there is mm-hmm. and it originates in people then you know that is the thing i want to label free will and and you you could disagree that that is a good label for what that is but that is the main problem i'm concerned with when you think of a new idea then could like could you have done otherwise what does that uh, sentence mean however that you couldn't have done otherwise or you you're going to do what you're going to do like that that that's just a tautology to me it it's just yeah. it's kind of like saying that um yeah i can't fly because uh the laws of phys- physics dictates that i can't fly and i don't have wings and, and things like mm-hmm. that right does that mean i'm not free i don't i don't know why uh, I, I don't know what determinism means here to you when you speak about it. To me, it's just a way of describing how, yeah, the physical world cannot go outside its own limitations, which we call the laws of physics. But within those restrictions, I don't see how, because we can create airplanes, right? Do you think that everything is fatalistic in that sense, that the future is already written because I remember, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you did, but David, I asked him about epiphenomenalism on our episode thread on Twitter. And he said something about... He asked whether it was the same as reductionism. Yeah, and, and then he spoke about how the, the laws of physics are time reversal invariant, which means mm-hmm. that you can also uh, run them the other way around. And I know that Sam explained this to me the first time we spoke, which means that you can also say that effects cause its causes which kind of renders that whole idea of causation uh, meaningless if you do that and i know that david said uh that nothing is caused by its effects but some things are caused by the creation of knowledge which is an in turn caused by those things and that's why the creation of knowledge is something fundamentally important in the explanation of things here yeah that also doesn't i i don't know what that's what that means or i, I can't make sense of that Sam, maybe maybe you can help me make sense of that. <laughs> so nothing is caused by its effects, which sounds like a way of it sounds like it's denying the time insensitivity of causation. So we perceive time to be moving forward, right? Or like events events progress from the past into the future. Mm-hmm. And some of some of those events involve the creation of knowledge. So Newton discovers calculus, right? At some point, at an earlier point, he doesn't know calculus. And at a later point, he does know calculus. And then he uses it to aim a cannonball at his, you know, enemy's house and destroys it. But you're saying like the the river flowing in one direction causes the later time of the river, but not vice versa. Uh, yes, well, that is a... Again, that is a problem that you're faced with if you're just looking at the equations in motion, which are time reversal. They have a time reversal symmetry. Well, because there does appear to be an error of time, an ill-understood error of time. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a real difficult problem in physics. Where is the problem why do we experience time going forward? Yes. Well, it's, it's why is there an error when the equations in motion are time reversible? I guess I'm not clear that the arrow exists. Yeah, so that is a way out, uh, which I find very unsatisfactory because th- th- there does appear to be an arrow, for example, in uh, uh, that is the thing I think David was alluding to that you, you know, you, the future doesn't, 
determine what kind of knowledge we will create now. Like our past situation is part of the problem situation. The future isn't. Our past is, yeah. So I think I'm okay. So Buddhism sort of relieves me of this as a problem or (laughs) sufficient meditation relieves me of this as a problem. It doesn't seem like a problem anymore. It seems if there is a problem, it's, it's sort of beyond description. It's, it's about the same intuition of the self. So I, I think it's, I think it's a hidden misconception. Maybe it's, it feels weird to say that the destruction of Newton's enemy's house causes him to build a cannonball, right? That, that doesn't make sense. Yes, but it, it doesn't. <clears throat> it makes sense when once you adopt the idea, or if you if you start seeing reality instead of, I, I think of the naive view. So, like the naive view of free will is just I'm a magical self. I direct myself, and you, it doesn't occur to you that that creates its own like infinite regress, and you may not know enough about physics to know about strict determinism. Um, in that way, <clears throat> the naive view of existence is that. I am just in this moment or that like, the universe exists in this moment. It, it, it also sort of, I see enough of the contradictions that I, it doesn't make intuitive sense to me anymore, but there is just now and now goes to the future and the past is just gone. It no longer exists. The future hasn't happened yet. It also doesn't exist. My theory about this now or feeling about it now is that the, the past is there. It exists. The future is there. It also exists. Mm-hmm. The reason for my being here now is basically not anthropomorphism. Sam, what's the word that I want? I'm not sure. <laughs> it just makes reference to the fact that I'm the observer. There's no question about why. Why are you here now instead of at any other time? Well, I'm I'm only asking that question because I'm the one here who's here. You now mean it's parochial? There's that's just a parochial fact of the world or something. Yeah, it comes up in beginning of infinity talking about um, explanations for why you're in one multiverse or instead of another or why why are the ah. why are the fundamental constants of nature such that they cause beings instead of not being able to do that well it's because nobody asks about them in those other universes the kind of anthropocentrism or something but and yeah yeah you took my word yes but so the, the solution is just that the, I, I it's only now because there's no other time when i could be experiencing now and so we the us who were having this conversation five minutes ago that that really exists that is a a place and it's still there and the future all of the different futures where we're going to be are all still there and the different pasts and in in a uh, multiverse sense now is sort of a tree that branches out in both directions right there's many pasts that get to exactly where we are now and where we are now leads to many different futures and so where you are is not really just a specific point where you can ask why why am I in this particular time and place? Well, it, it, you just are everywhere, and all of those things are happening, and they really exist. And so, so it, it's not at all unintuitive to think that yeah, the, the the blowing up of Newton's enemy's house, like most of those lead from Newton having an enemy and inventing calculus, right? And a, a few of them don't for because of some chance, but. Most of them do, and most of them go towards, you know, the, the kinds of uh, subsequent events that they do. But the the multiverse ch- channel here, where all of those things happen, that that sort of makes it the idea of just a line of history is not even true anyway. And so you, it, it's even more of just sort of the amorphous shifting now. Yeah, because one problem there is 
So, for example, in constructor theory, there there is an asymmetry between tasks that can be performed one way but not the other way. So, equations of motion of the universe are time reversible, but it doesn't mean that the kind of tasks that are possible can be uh, performed both ways. And that is an asymmetry. So, for example, if you see uh, the universe going in reverse, then you'll see certain tasks happening that can't happen. Well, I mean, a non-halting program is running and then it halts because it was going backwards? No. Yeah, yeah, I'm not clear on what that means. Like when, if, if we're describing, constructive theory is about describing our universe. Mm-hmm. And in our universe, um, situation A can lead to situation B. And then if you had situation B, then situation A sometime in the past is implied as a as a possible outcome. So I, I don't know what it means to say that you can't do it in reverse. Yes, yeah, so there's a difference between things evolving one way and the other way and making a task happen. So if you say, what would be a good example? You can mix two gases, which is a possible task, but it doesn't mean you can... Uh, it's immediately obvious that it's possible to unmix them as well, even though the equations of motion tell you, yeah, well, you could, you know, the the, uh, the reverse dynamic is possible, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't immediately imply that you can unmix the gases because that is not necessarily a task. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Sounds to me as though just the the naive conception, like the the just the the every man on the street conception of what a task is, like implies like a reversal that is not really a task, right? Like the, there's a difference between having a balloon, you know, a red balloon and a, a blue balloon with two gases and then letting them out and then sucking gases into a balloon. You you can't you can't cause a balloon to suck gases into itself by, you know, yeah, there, there's yep. there is no situation but that's that's thinking that that would be possible is just a mistake about those are, those are different tasks right it's not yeah there is really a, a sense in which when you mix two you, you could say mixing two gases is a task that you're performing it's some transformation of the physical system and unmixing them isn't necessarily possible isn't necessarily a possible task just because the dynamics can re- evolve in reverse and th- that is an asymmetry uh, of our universe, that uh, tasks are real physical things. Uh, I, I expect that constructive theory is right, and that we can formulate all of physics in terms of which tasks are and are not possible. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Uh, and then that becomes an asymmetry. That doesn't seem like an asymmetry, though. It just it just means that, <laughs> um, I mean, the the existence of an agent who's thinking about a task is itself a situation, and that situation doesn't happen in reverse. Constructive theory is about which tasks are and aren't possible. It's not about people. So it's what what is a task then? Uh, a task is a transformation of a physical system, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a person performing a task. So it's just an event. What separates a task from an event? <laughs> the spelling. <laughs> Sorry. If in, in constructive in constructive theory, a task is. First of all, performed on something you call substrate, which is attributes that can be changed with a physical process. And mm-hmm. the a task is specified by uh, input attributes of a substrate and then a set of output attributes that the task induces. 
So for a particular input attribute, you you then perform a transformation that results in an output attribute. Can you distinguish between like why? To me, this still sounds like you specify you specify a certain situation. So like the the world is a certain way at time A, mm-hmm. and then the world is a different way at time B. Is there any possible sequence of events such that you get from A to B? That depends entirely on what the the particular situation is. So, like that's that's what I mean about the that's what the that's what constructor theory is about. Though it's about given given situation A and situation B at two different times. Is there any path from A to B? You know, m- m- maybe you mean is the entropy uh, the entropy of the universe is now higher than it was at the beginning of our conversation? Can we? transform the universe such that the, the, the entropy of the whole universe uh, becomes lower again. And that will not be a possible transformation. But we can do the reverse, which is go to a situation with higher entropy. But, but maybe that's not what you mean. Yeah, no, I mean in constructor theory. So you would, I would specify, you know, I've got this bed here. And at the end, I want it to be a race car. <laughs> I've got, I want, I start, I start right here, right now with this bed. I mean, it depends on the definition of race car, right? But if, Spider-Man if I start here right now with one bed, and then in you know exactly one hour, I want this to be a race car, mm. is that possible or is it not possible for that to happen by any means? Mm. Is that is that like basically what constructor theory? I still can't separate. I, I can't tell what by what construct means or what. Um, I can't tell what construct means other than move from physical situation to physical situation in such and such a time time isn't really uh specified by constructive theory by the way but i think that is an open issue of how to treat time within constructive theory huh because then i mean otherwise it feels like just given an arbitrary time you know what so well certain transformations aren't possible even with arbitrary time like again you know i can give you an arbitrarily long time you'll never decrease the entropy of the universe so that's not the possible transformation Yes. Yeah. That, that feels like it's specifying whole universe into whole universe. Yeah. Well, that's just because I, I try, I'm trying to search for a convenient example. Another one would be, uh, or yeah, I can't turn a finite physical system into a perpetual motion machine. But I mean, even perpetual motion machine sort of, it gives you a, it says that, you, you know, it, it's a prediction about how that is going, how certain events will unfold in the future. I, I think what I'm trying to say is that, there is an asymmetry in time, and one of the asymmetries was this thing about tasks. But more importantly, knowledge. There's an asymmetry in what knowledge can affect, and and the, the I was causal denying of that. Knowledge. I yes. was I was denying <laughs> that knowledge is relevant to causality going forward. In that yes, case, and and I was trying to say there is this other formulation of fundamental laws of physics, right? In which there are similar asymmetries. So constructive theory has similar asymmetries despite being compatible with equations of motion. Uh, the reason I invoke constructive theory is because it's completely independent of what of people existing or not existing. There's a question of, is a task possible or impossible? And because uh, that, that it will be a law of physics or, or a principle of physics. Obviously, I'm not a physicist at Oxford, but it, it still sounds <laughs> to me like it's just describing a bunch of events and then whether or not they're possible. Yeah, but okay, so to tie it back to knowledge, there is a similar structure in knowledge. Like you, you, future knowledge doesn't affect past knowledge. All right, so 
I still feel like an important part here of this argument that hasn't been, what's it called, that hasn't been uh, explained in a satisfactory way or, or answered in a satisfactory way is the idea that yeah, what are the what is the purpose of explanations? We're we're trying to explain the world, right? And we're explanation creating entities. And every time we invoke a concept, it's it's uh, to solve some kind of a problem here. So I don't see just refuting an idea, saying that this idea, this theory is wrong, without a better alternative. I I, I don't see what the better alternative is to free will when we're trying to explain the behavior of knowledge creating entities here. So I, I, I'm curious still, Matt, if you, do you see what I mean there? Is there, it still plays a purpose to talk about agents making free choices. I don't know what the alternative is. And I would like to ask you, yeah, what, what do you propose is a better explanation? If we're both paparians and we presume that knowledge grows in a piecemeal way. And even if we go back to, I mean, the caveman times and, and any time after that, we had the myths that we today would consider bad explanations that we don't adopt anymore. But epistemologically, we have to uh, presume that the entities invoked by our best explanations uh, de facto exist. So I'm just curious, what, what is the better alternative, better alternative to free will as you see it? Yeah, I just don't see um, free will as necessary to explain any of those things, basically. And it might just be so, again, this might be boring, actually, because when Sam talks about uh, inventing new knowledge, I, I slightly disagree with that because, again, I think that sort of all of the knowledge that could be invented is exists in the sense that it is a real description. Prime numbers, even when this is a nebula, primality of numbers is true and it's an objective feature and it's an objectively you know their description of the irregularity and the way the universe works when someone invents it for the first time you know that that is just an event that was always possible and it's going to happen in some place um so when when people do things it does make sense to describe people make choices and they have preferences and um they want things and then they they decide what they're going to do and we can call that the will, and the will is the operation of the mind, whatever it is and however it works. Um, it's never necessary to call it free in, in, a, in a robust sense. It can be free in the sense that it's not coerced and that it's, you know, someone yeah. is uh, not free, obviously, to walk out of their cell. But I can describe everything that people do, and I can describe it in terms of their will and their preferences and their choices. It just It's also possible at the same time to, to then go back and notice those were just those events for the reasons that caused them. And, and there was no there was no inside force that was going to ever cause them to be differently given all the same conditions and so on. So I don't think that there's there's just no problem for me that is solved by free will. Do you think that knowledge has a real impact on the world, for example? I mean, yeah, it has an impact in the sense that and I guess this you and I talked separately about um, things being spontaneously caused as opposed to as opposed to caused by knowledge. So, I mean, knowledge has a an effect in the sense that, yes, there are some things, there are some events that can only be brought about by the existence of knowledge and by people and, and knowledge especially if we use the definition that knowledge is the kind of information structure that causes itself to, you know, be perpetuated or to sustain itself. 
then at, at that level, it's like, it's like life. Knowledge is a certain kind of pattern, and it's a pattern that has effects in its own domain that applies, right? So as an abstraction that describes things, it is there. Stars are an abstraction. Hydrogen, you know, on its way to be synthesized uh, through fusion in, in the middle of a star, the, if it falls in from outside of the solar system, right, it gets swept in. There, there's no moment in time when it becomes part of the star. If it starts far away at the outside of the solar system and then it eventually makes its way into a star, there, there's never going to be a single moment when it becomes part of the star. And in that sense, a star is not really there in the same way that a self is not really there. There are abstractions. They're just ways of describing events and regularities that are useful for people um, as a as a compression of the real, uh, you know, whole reality that's there. But it, they're just that. They're abstractions. They they simplify the the real story that encompasses everything that's happening. And so knowledge has effects, and you can some, using something like constructor theory, you can you can objectively define the abstractions of these are the events where knowledge has these effects. None of these things would be possible without knowledge. Knowledge caused these outcomes and so on. What I'm challenging is the idea that that fact that you can use them as abstractions and that they have objective reality in terms of the regularities that they describe, those facts don't give them any kind of metaphysical supremacy or primacy over the other descriptions available to us that are broader or at a more fundamental level or whatever it is. And since those, so I, and it feels like the the sneakiness of turning will into free will and, and thinking that the the fact that knowledge has these effects and only knowledge can have these effects and only people can explain at that sense these events, it's true that any time the explanation of those events is true, the abstraction of knowledge will also be true and the, the fact that a person is there will also be true. But that correspondence doesn't, doesn't create anything new in the universe that was not intrinsic to the same, like the same possibilities and the same rule system that we, you know, and, and by rule system, I'm not referring to any particular rule system, just, just the regularities in existence, right? The universe is the kind of thing that can instantiate everything that happens and everything that will happen or can happen. And some of them can be separated into things like stars and beds and race cars and race car beds. Yes. And race car beds. <laughs> but Th those were always those were always uh, intrinsic to what was possible, and everything is discovered in that sense. Nothing is invented in that sense. We can use invented to say, well, agents are a certain kind of thing. Yes, this is what happens when they blah blah blah, and we can talk about uh, elements. Right, uh, gold is the kind of thing that gets created in stars, and you can say, what's a star? And I can give you the abstraction, and if you then step back and say, well, okay, pointing at this piece of hydrogen, when is it part of the star? Well, now we can admit, well, there, there's not really a star in that sense. There's another level of description of the universe at which there are no stars. Um, the star is still there, of course. The same events are happening. It's just that our way of describing them takes no account of it. And so stars are fundamental in the way of creating gold before any agents are around. But that, that doesn't create anything metaphysically new. And in the same way, agents, even though we can talk about will and making choices and having preferences, that doesn't add anything metaphysically new. And so the agents can't 
do otherwise. They're, they're the same kind of events that are being, in a sense, pushed around. You can say that they're pushing things around because they, they are the cause in some sense, but there's always another level available at which they are not, they're not responsible. Even agents happen spontaneously in that sense. I want to say thank you very much to both of you. This was really fun. And uh, yeah, Sam, I'm going to give you closing argument here. One thing I want to say is there really are better explanations with respect to certain problems. So you, as I, as I understand you saying that, it's that I can always explain a certain situation given you know, initial conditions and equations of motion, that it's always a possible explanation. But I think that with regard to certain problems, that, that is not a sufficient explanation. That there are times when you have to explain why a, a house was built or why the economy works the way it does, in which case these lower-level explanations really fail. They really don't explain what you want them to. And in those cases, you need to use higher-level concepts, including concepts about people and uh, the fact that people can invent new things, can invent new ideas. And that ability is is what I call free will. And I, yeah, I think it is, it is a better explanation uh, in a variety of circumstances than the reductionist equations of motion explanation is. Yes, I think that's my final argument. So once again, I, uh, I hope both of you want to speak to me once more in the future. And uh, yeah, we've popped the cherry on the whole debate uh, or three-person conversation here today. So I'm very glad that I got to try it with you. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. It was a blast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you.